Romans chapter 1, we are in the uh, passage of Scripture today, verses 18 through 25, uh, that deals with the character of God, uh, but, but maybe a particular version of character that most people don't like to spend time in. Because after all, um, there are popular attributes when you think of God, right? If I said, tell me what you like about God, people would go, I love his love. I, I think God's grace is amazing. In fact, I like the way we write songs about amazing grace. And, and I love the fact that God sets us free and he doesn't judge our sins anymore. And, and he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. And on and on and on it goes. I mean, there's a list of character traits of God and how we experience God that everyone would say, those are my favorite. Those are the top 10 or whatever. Then there's a list of attributes of God that get less airplay, um, like holiness or sovereignty. Um, They might get a little bit deep for us, or maybe they cramp a style a little bit too much, and so they get a lot less time from us. And then there's one in particular that gets no love at all. In fact, if you were to measure it based on percentages, this attribute of God is despised. It's ignored. It's the wrath of God. Not too many bumper stickers out there with that one on it, right? Or necklaces, it's that breath, you know. Um, this is one that we don't find very, uh, very much good news. It's offensive to us. In fact, we don't even know how to put together the positive list, the ones that we like about God, his love and his mercy and his grace and then wrath. And we go, I don't know how, I don't know how those two things can go together. And so I'm confused. And so the, the, the church, to be honest with you, has, has had a tendency to kind of rewrite the character of God a little bit. Um, in fact, there are some churches who um, refuse to talk about sin and judgment whatsoever. It's not a popular subject. In fact, people aren't won over by a discussion about sin, so keep it on a positive note. We don't want to talk about a God of wrath. Um, and maybe, maybe you've seen even the book last year and a half or so. Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins, which basically has as, as its essence no such thing as hell, that God doesn't condemn anybody by wrath and judgment. So you can rewrite, you can rewrite the story, I suppose. You can say that those things even aren't true, that, that whatever the Bible says about God being angry about sin, and, and rightfully so, we, we can just deny that. Um, there has been, uh, well, I had a guy come to me two weeks ago. This happened two weeks ago. I had a phone call. And, uh, and he had a long conversation, of which I wasn't a part of <laughs> for the first six minutes. Um, and, um, but the question was this, why do you talk about sin so much? Like it was really, he doesn't go here. He goes to another church in, in our valley, a mega church, of, of which uh, I, someone I know used to go there who said they don't allow them to teach Romans. Can't touch it. And, you know, before we get real judgmental from a distance, let, just, let's be careful, okay? Because what we're going to discover in our message today is there's a, there's a problem that we all deal with, Right? But clearly the church, if it's backing away from this character of God being a God who takes sin seriously, and his conclusion to sin is a stored up wrath, and the church won't talk about it anymore, it perpetuates its own problems, right? It it ends up being a gospel that nobody gets saved by, and that no one is uh, is, uh, ready to deal with, because, let's be honest, it scares us, and it should. 
and, and because God's love seems to contradict his wrath, and so we think wrath, we, we picture things about God. We picture the angry guy flying off the handle, right, chucking stuff at everybody. He's the guy that's the bully. This is a big, bad bully God. He's a God of wrath. I mean, because how do we see wrath? We see fly off the handle kind of wrath. And so we wonder, no wonder that we can't get our minds or, or heads around God of wrath because you've heard things like this. My God would never, Right? And as soon as you hear someone describe God like that, my God, quotes, and then whatever follows, is a reinterpreted one, one that's comfortable, one that fits. Maybe we should just say God and leave it at that, but most people, when they run into some obstacle and they don't like it, they rewrite it. And part of what the church does today is just ignore it or present such a different type of message that God really wants you happy and, and he really is interested in your enrichment. Now, does God bless your life? Yes, of course. But God's interest isn't in just blessing or enrichment or happiness. God is a serious God about sin. And he's interested in holiness, of which is the, the controlling characteristic of God in all other attributes. He's holy, and so it does dictate his, his wrath. And so if you were to pick up a concordance, You don't have to do it. You can take my word for it. There is way more written on the fury, wrath, and anger of God, over 600 passages, than there is on God's grace, love, and benevolence. And yet, for whatever reason, I know the reason, the church backs out of that subject. Now, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor this morning. I want you to hang in there. Because the second word in the first verse we dig into is God's wrath. Um, this is not happy-go-lucky, leave feeling tingly good kind of a message. You understand? This is uphill. And we're not going to shy away from what it says because we know that it fits in the context of a gospel presentation. At the end, now trust me, church, at the end is an amazing good story. And everything that I have to say, apart from one last statement, is going to be hard. I won't leave you despondent, but it's going to be uphill all the way. So I need you to listen. If you're a skeptic, okay, I ask for you to just engage. 35 minutes from now, you can de-engage. But for these 35 minutes, I want you to wrestle with what God says about how he feels about our sin, okay? And when we're all said and done, I think I'm going to tell you the good news that God has an answer for that problem too. But because it's hard doesn't mean we should bail out on it, okay? So I want you to hang in there with me. Eight verses, eight verses that we're dealing with God's wrath, God's evidence of, of our guilt, and, and also his uh, conclusion to it. Verses 18 through 25. Let's read it together, and then we'll pull it apart. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I want to deal with the word wrath. Second word in the first verse in verse 18 that we're looking at today. There are two words in the scriptures for this word wrath. One of them is that your greatest fear kind of wrath. It's the, it's the fly off the handle kind of wrath. It's, it's the uh, outburst with exploding impulsive rage kind of wrath. This wrath is my kind of wrath. This is what I do, right? But there's another word for wrath and it's more of a slow simmer. It's a buildup. It's a determined indignation, a settled, abiding condition. It is God seeing all the rebellion in all the hearts of all men of all time, and in his holiness, he is storing up a right reaction and being patient. Get it? So picture a very in-controlled God um, storing up a proper response to sin. God's wrath is never impulsive. He's never out of control, and it's never out of proportion to the problem. You know, just the opposite to me. If you hit me in the eye, I cut off your legs. That's how it works in my life. Way overreaction. Way overreaction. God doesn't have the ability to overreact to sin, no matter what the outcome is. And you might look at hell and go, wow, really? A place of darkness and torment and gnashing of teeth where the worm never dies? Oh, my gosh. Really? Is that an overreaction to children disobeying their parents? Well, here's the problem. No compared to the holiness of God. And as long as you want to compare horizontally to people, you can say God's overreacting. But as soon as you have to look God in the eye and the separation between holiness and sinfulness, God doesn't overreact to sin. Do you understand? So hell is an appropriate response. Let me give you two reasons why God's wrath is essential to his character. This is why you can't just say, never mind, or let's ignore it, or let's teach something else, or don't use sin, and don't talk about wrath, and don't mention hell. This is why it's absolutely essential. It's a part of his character, because it's the flip side of the coin of his holiness. You see, God is holy in all that he is and all that he does. And God can't just look at sin and go, whatever. He can't just not treat it... um, indifferently. They absolutely go together. You can't separate them. If God didn't hate sin, he would no longer be holy. And if God was no longer holy, he would no longer be God. Do you understand? They're absolutely connected. Let me read to you what Arthur Pink wrote in his Attributes of God uh, book. He said this, how could he who is the sum of all excellency look with equal satisfaction upon virtue and vice? Wisdom and folly. How could he who is infinitely holy disregard sin and refuse to manifest his severity toward it? How could he who delights only in that which is pure and lovely not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile? The very nature of God makes hell as real a necessity as heaven is. Do you understand? Because God is right and pure and holy, then sin to him needs a reaction. Let me give you the other reason why it's directly connected to his character, and that is wrath is necessary for justice, right? So let me use a a real uh, current event to make my point. 
How did you feel when you turned on the TV this week and you saw the bombings in Boston? If you're normal, if you're normal, you were angry. If you're normal, you wanted somebody to pay. Like I said, I'm an extremist at get back. I was ready to bomb everything, okay? (laughs) Just bomb it all. And uh, that's why I'm not in charge of anything. Um, But I wanted payback. I wanted somebody to stop. You understand? I mean, children dying and people, innocent people being disfigured for the rest of their life simply because somebody wanted something to say. Now, if you, the sinful, twisted reflection of the character of God about justice, sees sin and vile things like that, then God in his perfect justice sees all sin and says, I can't, just let it go. I've used this illustration before with my children. Every time I screw up as a dad, I say, hey, will you forgive me? I I blew it. And they always start this way. It's okay. And I have to stop them. It's not okay. My sin is not okay. And to God, it's really not okay. And God's not just going to say, never mind. He's not going to just overlook it. He's not going to make it right some other way. God keeps copious records on all of our sin, every single one of them, to every person, man, woman, and child on this planet for all eternity. Because God can't overlook sin. God is a holy, just God. Do you understand? I'll say it all again. Let's start over. Do you understand? Okay, good. So, so far so good. If you're, even if you're marginally interested in what the Bible has to say about God and his character, for me to describe a holy God who hates sin, you kind of go, okay. Seems to make sense. I mean, if there was a God who was just evil, hurting people, that wouldn't, I wouldn't like that God. And if God really did care about justice and he never let anything get by him, that would make sense. So far, so good. Here's the problem. Everybody thinks it applies to someone else. Every one of us think, no, God's wrath is deserved and waiting for the bad like Saddam Hussein or, or bombers in Boston or crazy people like Adolf Hitler. That's where the wrath of God clearly needs to be applied because those people are nuts and they're evil and they've killed countless. And we always cut ourselves slack thinking it doesn't apply to us. L- listen to what Michael Horton says about this problem. He says, although most Americans believe in eternal judgment, few entertain the slightest fear that hell is their destination. Now listen to this. Since 77% of American evangelicals believe that humans are by nature basically good, the problem is not with belief in hell, but with whether we think we deserve it. Hell is not reserved for the eight or ten monsters of history, but it's the place of judgment to which we could all justly be sentenced. You see? That's that's the issue with, with wrath, and so everything we read now in these first three chapters is Paul's argument for that. That hardcore God-hating, denying pagans and really good moral people and church-going believers, everyone in between has a serious problem of sin and no one is exempt. There's no one walking out there who deserves God to go, never mind, you, you're, you're okay. We're all guilty. See, when we think about sin... This is classically human. We think about others' sin. I mean, we like to tell those stories. 
We like to observe someone's failure to us or observe someone's hurt of someone else or observe someone's motives or intentions, right? We can see that in other people, but when it comes to looking at our own sin, here's what we do. Eh, I had a bad day, <laughs> right? Didn't go very well for me today. I'm not, I'm not doing my best. God, God will understand. And by the way, my situation is far different. I'm the exception to the rule. That's in us. To look at other sin and see it clearly, to look at our own heart and go, mm, it doesn't apply. So Paul begins in verse 18, kind of like a legal case. He makes the charge, and then he finds the evidence for the charge, and then there's this conclusion of how God responds, responds to that charge. So let's, let's dig in in verse 18. Here's the charge. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the charge. Let me give you three definitions. There's three words, three phrases here that we want to unpack. One is the, the word ungodliness. The other is the word unrighteousness. And the third phrase is suppress the truth. Ungodliness is a direct disregard for God. It's seeing everything and knowing everything that there is, that, that there's a God who is holy and everything I've just described to you about him being just about sin and seeing our sin. But it's disregard for that God. That's where the problem starts. The, the second word I want you to see is unrighteousness. This is the action. This is the sin. Disregard from God, the action of sin, right? Rebellious. And then the suppression of truth. That means just to continually and aggressively striving against what you know to be true. So what I've just described to you is the sequence of sin. Here's how sin happens in us. We see a particular situation or circumstance and we disregard God. And we choose to solve our problems with some action. And the only way we can do that is by holding down what we know to be true. That's how it always happens to every, everybody who's ever lived. It starts with living for yourself in total disregard. A, ungodliness is assessing your situation and, and saying, you know what, I'm not happy. I deserve to be happy. My wife's crazy. My husband's an idiot. I need more money. Whatever the story is, however you think you need or what you want, and you, you just adjust it, and that's where the unrighteousness comes in. Your unrighteousness is your solution to your disregard for God, you see? So you make these assessments that you deserve to be happy. You go and sin to make yourself happy, and the only way you can do that is by holding down what you know to be true. That's the charge that Paul makes against every man, woman, and child. That's the sequence of sin. We suppress the truth. So let me paraphrase it so you get it. Mankind everywhere disregards God and lives a life for himself as Lord of his own life, and the result is actions of sin and selfishness that hurt himself and other people, and we're stuck in an aggressive fight against God and truth. That's the charge. Pretty bleak. Verse 19 and following, he begins to prove that charge. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In theological circles, this is called the doctrine of natural revelation. Um, all that means is, that might sound a little heady, but all that means is that what can and should be known, uh, it can be seen by creation in the world about God, simply by observing. Um, now, let, let me just contrast and compare it to special revelation so you see what I'm talking about. You can't look at the stars at night or the moon and say, I know there's a Savior. His name is Jesus. 
You can't walk out and see the sun shine and go, and, and you know what? There's salvation, and there's hell to shine, and salvation to be known. You, you can't know God's special revelation. That comes simply through what he's revealed in the scriptures or the person of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. That needs a special work. But, div, but this natural revelation means that Paul says you, you go out there, and you look around, and you lose your excuses. You can no longer say, there's no such thing as God, or my God would, or my God is this. There's a, there's, a, there's a judgment there. So we all know enough to honor God. And according to Paul, even if, you, even if you've never been to church, even though you've never read a Bible, never had a Bible, even if you didn't grow up in good old U.S. of A., um, you know enough about God by what has been made to not have any excuses anymore. Now listen to what the New Living Translation, how they write it. I think it helps us a little bit. It says it this way. They know the truth about God because God has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. You see? Let me illustrate it this way. Um, Let's pretend for a second you and I have never, ever met. And because of preaching, even though I might have never met you, you know stuff about me because I tell stories about me or whatever, right? But let's pretend we never, ever met. We didn't, we didn't know of one another or we didn't have a common life. We don't live in Gilbert together or whatever town you live in. All you simply had was my address. And you came over to my house and the garage door was open. And you walked in the garage door and you would look to your left and right. And you'd see an engine hoist over here and you'd see a welder over there. And you'd see a bunch of tools and you could make a conclusion about what I do with my free time. you see a couple old trucks in the driveway. You go in the house, and every room's got guitars in it, and there's drums and keyboards everywhere. And there's these pictures on the mantle of the, of the living room, and, and they're pictures of all these hairy guys that live in my house. And you just walked around. You could leave there, having never met me, and make a clear assessment of who I am, couldn't you? You could see my trucks and my tools and my guitars and my kids' pictures, and you go, this is the kind of guy he is. And you'd be right. And that's all Paul's saying about creation. Paul says you can't go outside and not see how the sun rises and sets the same way every day or how the moon lights the evening or the stars and how they've guided us for so long and how how the rain falls on the crops and crops grow and these seasons are all perfect and in order. You can take a breath and breathe. You can't look at creation and not know something about God. And all you need to know about God is what creation reveals, and all you know about what creation reveals condemns you forever for denying God. Do you see his point? That's all that it takes. And God's wrath is revealed that way. And by the way, just a little side note. You might have asked this question, or you've heard people ask it. Well, what about those people living in faraway places who don't sit in church pews and don't listen to messages about God? How do I answer those questions? Well, this is God's answer to those people. And those questions, same answer. By looking at the world around us, even the person in the most undiscovered jungle on the planet is without excuse. Because the order of creation says there's a creator. And it's way too detailed not to see a designer. And there's way too much power in the sky when lightning flashes and thunder and storms not know he's powerful. And to also conclude he has to exist before this if he was a part of it, right? And not to also see the fact that it's so beautiful that our God has to be a good God and not an evil God. And also to know that he deserves some kind of attention. 
We would call it worship. Creation does that. And that's the answer Paul gives to everybody on the planet. This is what condemns us. It's not like you're sitting in some seminary class hearing a clearly articulated, uh, articulated theology statement and going, I reject that. Well, you don't, get reje- you don't get rejected by God for your rejection of some theological system. All you have to do is wake up someday and deny the existence of God and everyone's born in that condition. So here's the problem with that. What does mankind do with natural, obvious revelation? Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Here's what Paul says. They refused to honor and recognize and give thanks. That's what happens. Now, by the way, we love the benevolent kindness of God. I love what God does. Everyone does, right? I love my comfort. I love my health. I love my life. Everyone loves God's kindness, but here's what we do, and here's what Paul says. We pat ourselves on our back for our own accomplishments. We, we uh, admire our wisdom, and we give credit to things like circumstances and people and luck, but we will not thank God. That's what Paul says is in the human heart. Like, we get all carried away with what we can do and what others can do, but the obvious revealed nature of God by what has been made, we kind of go, whatever, it's not true. This clearly was some, nothing, bouncing into nothing, creating everything. That's pretty stupid. So, look at verse 22. This is Paul's indictment against mankind and his truth suppression problem. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. There are two words here. I'm not a Greek guy, but I love the way these words help us understand what what Paul is saying here. Two words, the word wise and fool. First of all, the word wise is the Greek word sophi, which we get our word sophisticated or philosophy from. And, And the word for fools is moros, where we get moron from, okay? Now, let me paraphrase what Paul has just said. Mankind claims to be sophisticated and philosophically wise, but by denying God, they're absolute morons. You didn't know that the Bible is so practical. <laughs> now, I want you to back up to verse 21 and see a phrase here, which provides for us a serious problem because it describes a perpetual, ongoing, um, can't get out of it spiral. Here's what he says in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Now, here's the phrase. But they became futile in their thinking. This is a denial of truth that creates a perpetual ongoing problem. In, in other words, when truth is rejected, the ability to recognize truth is ruined. Did you hear what I just said? When you know there's a God by what has been made and you deny it or call it something else, as soon as you compromise truth, the ability to recognize truth just gets evaporated. And so you can look around your world, people who deny the existence of God, don't they do stupid things? And don't they have stupid answers to the, to the, the, the questions the world provides? So let me just show you Paul's argument here. He, he describes how it looks to him and how I think it looks to us. People who reject the truth that, is, that there is a sovereign creating God find themselves creating all sorts of ridiculous things. Look at verse 23. And they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Here's what Paul says. The outcome of denying the truth about God is idol worship. It's idol worship. So let me define what that is. Um, we don't like the God of creation, so we create our own God. And the number one, number one rule uh, of idolatry is that man makes gods in his image that he can control. God, you're too powerful. I don't dig that sin thing. I, I don't dig punishment. And this wrath word, I have no time for. So let me just invent a God that's way more comfortable. He looks like me. And by the way, if there's ever a problem, I can just adjust him. I can make him do something else. And, and before you think that you're the exception to the rule, like you can go, well, I don't have any graven images in my backyard. I mean, I don't have any animals or reptiles I'm bowing down to. This clearly applies to somebody else, like a primitive culture. Uh, that's not Paul's point here. The human heart makes up idols. It's an idol factory. And maybe in that culture, they fashioned idols that looked like things. But, but idolatry is very subtle, isn't it? Very subtle. Some of us in here, we have idols that look like uh, careers or success, money, our families, our happiness. What, whatever it is, we put there and it just gets above God and it justifies every decision and every sin we do to get that and becomes this idol for us. So let me kind of prove my point. When you read something in the scriptures that you don't like what it says or you disagree with it or it pushes or cramps your style a little bit too much and you say it just doesn't apply to me or my circumstance or this is really dated and it doesn't, it's, it's culturally sensitive, not, not universally, so I can ignore it, that's idolatry. Like, for instance, next week we're going to continue this journey that Paul takes to say, here's what it looks like when God gives people what they want. And it's a sexual distortion. We're going to talk about homosexuality in two weeks, or for the next two weeks. A biblical perspective on sexuality. And in a culture that's going that way fast and departing everything that the Bible says is a natural created order of things, okay? When you read what the Bible says about it and you say, well, it doesn't apply to me and how I feel is greater than what God has said, then I'm just telling you found your idol. In every place, you look at the word of God and say, it can't meet my needs or it doesn't match up with what I feel, then you have found what is more important than God. You get it? You're fashioning a God that fits your life, one that doesn't cramp your style, one that has no authority and doesn't bring judgment to your sin. Now, I get why you do that, because what you prefer apart from Christ is all the things that you can do to make yourself happy. Now, Paul makes an argument of why that is a stupid idea. Excuse me if you don't like the word stupid, but it's dumb. But that's what we do. When God says, do it this way or don't do it that way, he's not being an ogre. He's trying to give us a blessed life. But when we push against God and go do our thing, what we end up with is a pigsty of pain. And here's what he says, okay? The outcome is way different than you would expect. So if I introduced to you in the very beginning of this talk, this idea of God being a wrathful God, what typically happens in the human heart is to think, okay, when I rebel against what I know to be true, this wrathful God is going to come. Like he's going to stop it, right? 
He's going to put a stop to all this rebellion. But Paul says it's just the opposite. What the Bible says God does to people who deny the existence and reality of God and refuse to worship him but give thanks to other things, God does this thing called giving us over. I want you to see in verse 24 what he says. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth for a lie. There are two understandings of this phrase, God gives them over. Let me tell you what the first one is. This one's scary. God withdraws his restraining, controlling, protective hand from your life and he allows the consequences of your sin to do their destructive damage. So you're living your life and you're denying God and denying the reality of God or the authority of Scripture or the authority of God in your life and you just want what you want. You want to redefine terms and you want to say this is not sin. It might be for you, but it's not for me. Truth is relative. I can do whatever I want to do. And God does this. You want it? You got it. And here's what sin does to people. And if you're old enough, you know what I'm talking about. Sin ruins you. See, God in his benevolent kindness has this thing called um, holding back. He puts a fence around us at some degree. And all the horrible ways we could sin against ourselves and other people, God has a restraining order until we say, I deny you, I deny you, I deny you. And God says... Okay, find out yourself. And the destructive nature of sin is that it totally degrades people. And it strips them of dignity that the Bible says man has been created in the image of God. And it strips him of peace that is only found in Christ through, through his finished work. And it strips him of sleeping well and having a free conscience. Because haven't you worn yourself out with the consequence of your sin, wishing you were a different person, hoping that nobody finds out? destroys relationships and all around you is like the bodies, not legitimate real bodies, but the bodies of relationships, family and friends and people because sin has just done its damage. And that's when God says to you, you deny me? You deny me? Really? You're going you're gonna to say there's no authority? You're going to say I'm not here? You're not going to give me thanks? You're not going to worship me? Then do it. He doesn't actively have to do anything. He just steps away from his reserving nature. There's another aspect to this God giving us over, and it's, it's what every Christian, and I want to define that, I do every week. Um, by Christian, I mean you have realized this sin problem that we're talking about, and you've realized that it's a problem to God, and you realize the problem was so great that only God could solve it, and God came from heaven, took on flesh, and died a death in your place to bear all the weight of this wrath for you, to give you freedom, forgiveness of sin, not to be judged by it ever again. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not that you go to church, not that you're a good person, not that you know stuff, okay? Christian is believing in what Jesus has done because you can, okay? That precision. Every person who's been a Christian lived long enough knows what this second aspect of giving over is. It's when God allows you to go to the end of yourself, You've chased the rabbit hole. You've rebelled against God. You've experienced the weight of all these cataclysmic responses to the sin in your life. And you get to the bottom and you go, I'm done. I'm done. I don't want it anymore. It doesn't make me happy. Me being my own God ruins everything. 
I don't want it. It's weight. It's what I call the loving hand of God, the hound of heaven, pressing on people saying, see what it does? See what it does? And you tap out and you say, I want Jesus. I want freedom. I want forgiveness. I want hope. I don't want that. So for a lot of us, we've been there where God says, go. Go for a season. Go hurt yourself and other people so that you know you can't fix your problem. And some of you are so hardened towards God that there's only one future destination. If, if God doesn't intervene in your life, if you don't embrace what Jesus has done for you, the wrath of God remains on you. If you were to walk out of here today and get hit by the proverbial bus, that's it. No recovery, no return. The wrath of God for all eternity rightfully applied to sinners who denied the existence and would not give thanks. Now, I told you in the very beginning to hang in there with me. I told you it was uphill, and it is uphill. But if, if there isn't a serious God taking sin seriously and his holy reaction to sin isn't wrath, then what we're doing right now is a joke. He doesn't deserve worship if he's just a soft little fuzzball of love. He deserves worship because he's a holy, wrathful God who is so serious about sin that he's willing to die and bear it. Do you understand? That's why it's important. So Paul has told us about the charge. God's wrath remains on you because you deny the existence. You suppress the truth. And here's the evidence. Walk outside. You deny that he's true. You worship other things. Give thanks to other things. In fact, you make up your own gods. And the result is that God gives us over to crushing and condemning and crippling sin. And some of you today, I know, I know, are going to feel overwhelmed by this. God's a God of wrath who doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't grade on the curve and he won't ignore it. Well, can I leave you with a couple thoughts here today? I've got one good thought. The, other, the others are true. But there's one that you need. Here's the first thought I want you to leave with today. God has the right to be angry. If you're sitting here today going, I don't like it, doesn't make any sense, I want you to know he has the right to be angry. If it's true, and I believe it is, the Bible says that every one of us are in that position, rebelling against God. We've treated him with contempt. We ignore him. We deny him, and we replace him. He has every right to have a wrathful attitude towards our sin. And let, let me just stop and say this, okay? And I know this is always true. Some of you right now are hearing me, and you've already got plans to rebel. I heard just this last week of two couples, two husbands and wives, making plans for other lives. I understand sin. I understand temptation. I do. I understand what it's like to feel dis disappointed or disillusioned. I understand. But if you really are truly a believer and you're building a house where you can live in sin, then you need to stop. You need to stop. God has a right reaction to sin. You need to repent. Here's what the scriptures tell me. It tells me that Christians will sin. Paul talks about it. We're going to see it in, in chapter 6. The struggle of the flesh versus the spirit. But here's what I also know the Bible teaches. Christians repent. That's what we do. A lot, right? A lot. We don't ever live there. And so God has the right to be angry. 
Here's the other thing I want you to leave with, and that is there's no such thing as a free pass. There's no such thing as a free pass. If you're trying to find a loophole, forget it. There isn't one. Paul says we're all guilty. You, me, and the person in the jungle who's never been found. We're all guilty because we deny the existence of God and we're guilty as charged. Can I leave you with one thought that I, I pray for you, that you receive if you haven't already? And that is, even though we're talking about God's wrath, and next week we're going to talk about a more deeper darkness of God's wrath when people exchange what's natural order for unnatural in a a sexual perversion kind of a thing, um, there's still hope. We have a thing every Wednesday called the Preaching Collective, which is all the pastors who teach at all the redemption churches get together and study the passage that we're going to teach in in 10 days. And we were going through this wrath, and, and, and it's heavy, I get it. And it's, it's so weighted, our problem and God's reaction to our problem. But, but here's what you need to see. In this section on God's wrath, it's not over if you repent. No matter what dark, deep hole you are in right now, no matter if you've rebelled against God and his truth, no matter though you've defined it some other way and you've lived for some other reason, no matter what idols you're serving, no matter what sin you've committed, no matter what it is right now, if you're hearing me right now and breathing, you have the opportunity to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. There's hope. We're just about ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is this picture of what God did to fix this problem. Jesus gave his life, and it was broken for us. His blood was spilled to atone, to satisfy God's standard of righteousness that we couldn't meet on our own. You can have it by faith, not by religion, not by being good enough, not by thinking differently necessarily. You have to trust that Jesus Christ alone can provide a sacrifice for your sin, that God's wrath, all of it, every bit of it, was poured out exactly in its horror on Christ. The cross wasn't brutal because of thorns or nails. It wasn't because it was in front of everyone and he was shamed, right? That's bad. A lot of people have died in this world. But what was horrible that no one would ever know is that the holy, almighty God poured out all of his wrath on all the sin of all who would believe. And Jesus bore it all, drank it all down for us. Do you understand? That's the horror of the cross. And it's for you too if you trust in Christ by faith. The Bible says something so simple, it's absurd. If you believe that Jesus is God and that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's a simple truth, but profound. It's it's recognizing your answers don't work, your answers were wrong, that the only one that's true is the wisdom of God who was revealed in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen? Let's pray together. God, thank you for this truth, even though it's hard, even though it's heavy. Thinking about your righteous indignation, your stored up wrath for our sin and rebellion. God, that's hard for us to look at because it's scary. But at the end of that statement, you've provided our solution. The only one, not an option, not one of many, but the one and only. Jesus, our Savior. That's who we celebrate today, God. I pray for those in this room who don't know you who are skeptics. God, I pray that your spirit would 
overpower them today with the reality that their sin is that bad, that their personal answers do not work, and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.